You said you had enough back, but instead you attacked. You got me out of my head. We won't go and solve this time. We'll catch you and your crimes will be shining the light. Welcome to Cold Case MHS, where real education meets real life. I'm your host, Randy Hubbard, an instructor of Cold Case MHS. And I'm your co-host, Liam, and this is Ashlyn. And we thank you for listening. Many people see crime as a big city problem, but through our research, we know that violent people are everywhere, even in a small town. Small towns often have that grandpa figure that seems to know everyone. The community respects them in the highest regard because they always seem to greet you with a smile and often have words of wisdom to share from a life well lived. Unfortunately, some people don't see them as a grandfather, but as an easy target. In this episode, we delve into the awful murder of a fallen hero who served not only his community, but his country. About 11 miles southwest of the city of Chillicothe, Ohio, is a town called Knockhamstoke. Now, the history of the town's name has been debated for a long time, but one thing is for sure. Knockhamstoke's name serves as a cruel reminder of the violence in the town. The area is known for rough behavior and crime, and has actually inspired several books and even a Netflix film called Devil All the Time, which highlights the negative attributes of Knockhamstoke. Just 11 miles away is the city of Chillicothe. What Chillicothe lacks in a name, it makes up for a poor reputation. With an increase in drug use, robbery, assault, and home invasion rates in Chillicothe have risen to a crime rate of about 46 crimes per 1,000 residents. For comparison, Cincinnati's crime rate is 40 crimes per 1,000 residents. This means that Chillicothe, which is eight times smaller than Cincinnati and in a semi-rural area, has a comparable crime rate to that of a large city. For many years, the opinion of Chillicothe has been extremely negative, and the citizens of this city have suffered at the hands of criminals for too long. On the early morning hours of Sunday, October 16, 2011, law enforcement responded to a situation occurring at 14546 State Route 772. Located along a busy highway between Chillicothe and Huntington Township, where Knockham Stiff is located. Intending to bring McDonald's breakfast to her grandfather, a young woman and her husband discovered something much more tragic. When they opened the front door, smoke poured out of the house. Two passerby stopped to help pull Harry W. Smith, the homeowner, out of the smoke. Harry had suffered severe blunt force trauma to the head and had unfortunately already passed away. To despise investigation, private detective work, and professional help, 12 years later, the murder of Harry W. Smith is still unsolved. Harry Smith lived in Chillicothe, Ohio, in Ross County, was married to Opal Park, and had two kids, Gerald Smith and Peggy Smith, and five grandchildren. Harry was a loving, brave, hardworking man. He joined the Navy right after Pearl Harbor and started working at Walmart as the first-time official Walmart greeter from 1995 to 2007. It was known as Grandpa Walmart. Harry had a small dog named Dolly, but otherwise he lived alone. His wife, Opal, had passed away in a nursing home months earlier. He also rode a mobile scooter, although he was still able to walk around his house pretty well. As a veteran, Harry did own a gun at one point. But when he moved out of his house for a while, it was robbed and his gun was stolen. Thus, Harry did not have a gun and did not have any type of security system in his house. However, as a resident of Chillicothe, he knew to lock his doors and would only open them for people he knew. So they talk about the fact that his house was broken into prior to the day that he was murdered and that they took his gun and a few other things the first time. And he also did not have any kind of a security system of some sort. What does that tell you a little bit about our assailants? Uh, It could mean that this was a very planned attack. Um, The assailants could have very well knew that they were going into a house with no security systems, that 
risk seeing their face and they also could have known that they're going into a house with no gun. So they have that extra protection to them to where they know they really stand no threat to this not working. Like similarly, it it's like a possibility that the it's possibly like a group, like the person that came in before and robbed his house kind of like quote unquote scouted it out for like a future robbery because again, they would know that he had no security system and no gun after it was stolen. And again, it also appears as if they had knew his time period of when he was going to be there, when he wasn't going to be there. So it kind of looks as if maybe somebody came back to get something. Once he retired, Harry Smith didn't go out much, and his grandson and his wife regularly visited every Sunday after early church service. On October 15, 2011, their family reunion took place in the Fellowship Hall of the First Church of the Nazarene, where a handful of the family gathered. This would be the last time they saw him alive. So as we talk about in class, we always talk about victimology, which includes family, things they did prior to that day, what were they doing the week before, all those kind of things. One of the things they mentioned is that there was a family reunion at a church the day before, and we had some specialists from the BCI come in here, and they kind of hinted that we should really look at the pictures of that family reunion. Now, we are in no way accusing anybody in the family or anybody that was at that church of committing this crime, but what could that possibly tell us about where we might need to look? Uh, I mean, it could tell us that this crime that occurred could have very well happened in the family. Like with, like said before, uh, Harry didn't open his door for anybody that he didn't know, so it's very strange that he kind of, you know, opened his door willingly, knowing that possibly he didn't know the person that was outside. But it also could mean that, you know, anybody not in the picture, anybody that kind of seems a little resilient towards Harry a little bit could be involved. The next morning, his granddaughter went to his house after early morning church service to drop off his weekly McDonald's breakfast when they found the house dark and filled with smoke. They immediately tried to open the door when a few passerbys noticed the commotion and came to help. The police came and took Harry away to the Adena Medical Center, where he was pronounced dead at about 10 a.m. on October 16, 2011. The second man to come to help was interviewed by a private investigator and stated that he saw many people standing at Harry's porch and saw smoke coming from the house, so he stopped to try and help. He tried to enter the house, but could not find Harry. Only after many attempts, he was able to locate him on the living room floor. He told the private investigator that he was face down on his stomach and his arms were tied behind his back. In order to get him out, he removed the bindings and threw them towards the couch then dragged him to the door where the rest of the people outside helped to get him out. The same man said the bindings were made from some sort of cloth, or maybe even rope, and his head was bloody. The other man present said that he noticed that Harry wasn't wearing socks and his body wasn't cold. It was initially called a suicide by the police, so no one was investigated further, and both of the men later reported that they were not even questioned or asked to be questioned, even though one of the men that found his body in the house gave his business card to an officer that was on the scene. I'd like to point out that the sheriff in charge told the press that they didn't find any binds in the house or evidence that he was bound. Then again, this was from a news article and we couldn't find out if it was super credible or not. We continue to research Harry's name on Google. This was quite difficult as Harry Smith is a pretty common name. However, we adjusted our search techniques through higher specifications and we began to find articles concerning Harry's murder. We used newspapers.com to discover newspaper articles written about the incident, and we used Harry and his wife's obituaries to find the names of family members. 
Later, we compiled those names into interactive family tree and a composite chart of names, phone numbers, emails, addresses, social media, and other important information. One of our biggest challenges was misinformation between articles. Information about the crime varied slightly from article to article, so it was difficult to get a precise grasp on what really happened on October 16th. So they talked about how they were gathering their information and all the places they looked for and so forth, and we did find a lot of roadblocks along the way. But one of the main things about this class is that type of in-depth research. So tell us a little bit about the experiences you guys had during your cases with this. For me, we hit a wall at the beginning of our investigation. We found a bunch of articles online, but the information that we found in those, it was super different from article to article. So we were struggling to prove anything or think of anything as correct. We tried to reach out to family at the beginning. We weren't getting responses back. And then we hit a break. We were able to talk to our victim's daughter. She actually told us after that she was kind of talking to all of her siblings, saying what they wanted to tell us and all the stuff that they wanted to share with us. So I think for us it was a little bit different because all the information that we got that I guess we're believing is from someone that was close to the victim, which I feel like is different from a lot of the cases that we see the other students doing. Yeah, for my case it was a little bit different. We kind of started off against the wall. There was hardly any articles on our case. There's probably two or three. Luckily those two articles or three articles, they all lined up on like Ashlyn's group. But our main problem was that our victim's family had still yet to even talk to the detectives that worked on the case. So they were still in the grieving process in a great amount. So we wanted to respect that. So we kind of left them alone because we knew we didn't want to push them too hard to where we're stepping over our boundary. So kind of our next step was to just try to find someone that worked on the case, that knew the case. And luckily we were, find, we were able to find the detective that worked on our, on our case and we were able to get a hold of him. And we ended up having multiple interviews, great interviews with him. And he was able to give us a great amount of information. And we were also able to get a hold of a couple news reporters, one of them that worked on the case and another one that was kind of in the area. And they were able to help us a lot. You see a lot of these cases and these groups, they were able to get a hold of the family members and everything. And unfortunately, we weren't able to do that. So the whole idea of this was that we are trying to reach deep into you know, where you get information, things like that. I think all of our groups at least tried to do that. Others were more successful than, than some, but the part about it was trying to get you guys to learn how to communicate, how to talk to people, how to ask the right questions, and how to be patient, because unfortunately patience was an issue. We also sent a FOIA request to the Ross County Police Department and to George Lavender, the county sheriff, directly, but all our requests were denied because the case is still considered open. Because of this, we weren't able to obtain the original police report. After having our FOIA request denied, we decided to request an autopsy report from the Ross County Coroner in order to get a better understanding of how Harry passed. As was stated previously, it was reported that Harry had broken his nose, along with having serious contusions and fractures on his head, abdomen, face, back, and wrists. There was no suit found in his airway, meaning that he had passed before the fires in the house were started. The autopsy report also stated that Harry had advanced heart disease and was made clear by the two coronary artery bypass grafts placed by a surgeon and the very advanced arthrosclerosis. This is significant because Harry's heart would have not held up well to extreme pressure. The coroner's final opinion states that Harry's cause of death was blunt force trauma with heart disease contributing 
meaning that Harry most likely suffered from a heart attack while he was being attacked. The autopsy was completed on October 17th, one day after he had passed. However, his death was not ruled a homicide until June 11, 2012, another eight months after his death. A possible explanation for this delay is lack of evidence due to smoke damage. The end of November, after speaking with the fire department, was when we hit a plateau in our research. One of our biggest struggles was finding people to talk to. With the names of some of Harry's family, but we weren't able to find the social media of many of those people. However, in January, we had a huge breakthrough in the discovery of a Justice for Harry W. Smith Facebook page, which directly supplied us with the social medias and contacts of many people who were close to Harry. We discovered some very groundbreaking information that really helped us solidify our research. For example, we initially believed that only psych items had been stolen from Harry's house, his class ring, another personal jewelry item, and a checkbook. However, we later discovered from a close family member that this was not the case and many items had been stolen from the house, including money, cell phones, wallets, rings, and electronic devices, along with other loot that was left behind in a pillowcase. So the articles they read about the break-in and his murder talked a little bit about just a few things that were taken, and they were kind of unusual things, like a class ring, some wooden type ring, checkbook that was his personal checkbook, and a money box that was actually not taken, but it was sitting close to his body, but they later found that it was empty. But we did find later from their talk with the family that there were quite a few things taken from the house, including money, rings, some other valuable things, and then there was stuff actually in bags that were left by the back door that they were trying to take out of there. What does that tell you a little bit about what our suspect was doing and looking for when they went into the house? Well, when you look at everything that was robbed, you look money, jewelry, rings, whatnot, it all has some sort of money value to it. So I think a lot of this stems back to drug use. They were going out for drug money. They needed kind of just a a quick hit to get the drug money, and they kind of saw this as maybe an easier target, an easier chance to go after. And so they so they grabbed stuff that they knew had some sort of money value to it. This could also mean that our suspect could possibly be not that intelligent because if you know anything about pawning off jewelry and stuff like that, you know that class rings aren't super valuable. So they could be thinking, oh, this is shiny jewelry, like I'm going to get a lot of money for this and just be taking what they can see. But if they did know anything about maybe previous robberies, knowing things that they pawned off from previous robberies, they would know that it doesn't have a lot of monetary value. We decided to contact Andrea Smith, family spokeswoman, who is a wife of one of Harry's grandsons. She provided us with very valuable information, including specifics about Harry, information about the investigation, and reports from the Lysurgus Group. Lysurgus Group is a private investigation firm in Columbus, Ohio, that was hired by Harry's family after his death. The firm was hired after the family became increasingly frustrated with the investigation delays. This report was incredibly important to us as it helped confirm certain suspicions about Harry's murder and gave us a specific timeline of the investigation process. On the morning of October 16, 2011, Harry W. Smith's family had their worlds turned upside down. We believe that Harry had opened his door expecting his granddaughter with breakfast, but instead came face to face with a home invader. There are several qualities that we believe Harry's killer would have had. Number one, we are fairly certain that the intruder knew of Harry and were possibly local. The circumstances of this crime were tying too well to be completely random. Perhaps the perpetrator could have been watching the house or watching his routines. Harry was elderly and lived alone. We believe that it is very likely that Harry was specifically chosen for this crime. 
It is also possible that the person or people who robbed Harry's house and stole his gun are the same people that killed him. Perhaps they didn't expect him to be there. Secondly, we believe that there could have been multiple people involved. The events of this murder happened very fast, and there were likely multiple people involved. There are many different stages of this crime, including the restraining of Harry, the robbery of the house, setting the fires, and ultimately killing Harry. We think that this would have been too much work for one person. We also believe that it wasn't the intruder's intention to kill Harry at first. The fact that so many items were taken makes us feel as though this was a robbery gone south. If the whole intention was to murder Harry, why didn't they kill him initially? Why would they tie him up first? Something must have happened in order to cause the robbery to go wrong. The fact that loot was left behind in the pillowcase is also an indicator that something went badly. The fires were also likely set to cover up the murder that wasn't supposed to happen. So one of the things from the crime scene that also was kind of unusual is that they did have some stuff that we mentioned earlier that was in bags that were laying by the door when they tried to escape or whatever. And also the fact that they had to actually kill and beat up an 80-year-old man. What does that tell you a little bit about this situation? So going off the dropped items, I think a lot of it could mean that they were, they were rushed, whether they knew they were on a time crunch or not. Um, you know, they knew, well, their time's running out, we gotta go. So they kind of just grabbed stuff that they make, they make me can just throw in their pockets and they thought had some value to it and went out. Or if they actually would have saw someone coming to the door or coming to the house and they kind of had like an oh shoot moment and they're like, okay, now it's time to get out and they just left in a hurry. I think for the way that Harry was, his body was, I think that either that stems off of a panic or that stems off of like a personal, maybe possibly like relationship with Harry. Because if you think about it, if they're just going to this robbery knowing that he has no security cameras, he doesn't have a gun, they could be thinking about his schedule. They could be thinking about, oh, he's probably here at this time, so we're gonna go in, we're just gonna grab all this stuff and leave. Like there's gonna be no roadblock. It's just gonna be easy. But that's not what happened. You could also say that they didn't plan on killing Harry. It was kind of something that was like a heat of the moment decision because he was tied up so that makes me think at least that they kind of put him to the side while they robbed the house, decided what they were going to do with him because maybe he saw their faces, maybe he recognized them and then that kind of threw him into a panic which could also explain dropped items and like things left behind. When we spoke to Troy County Fire Department, they told us that the fires that were set in the house were likely lit by a matter of convenience. What we mean by this is that the fires weren't set properly and likely smoked out because they weren't planned or intended. If the fires were intended to be set, the perpetrator would have done a much better job at making sure the fires caught. Finally, we believe that the perpetrator was likely a local person. Right down the road is Huntington Township, a very rough area. Many criminals in the town do what they do for drug money and robbery is exceedingly common. The person or people who commit this crime likely had similar motives or possibly seeking money for drugs. We are not done researching Harry's case. There are still many other leads we still plan on pursuing, including contacting other people who knew Harry. We also plan to contact the case's current prosecutor as well as the church Harry and his wife often attended. We also want to find other similar crimes in the area to compare information in case the perpetrator committed multiple crimes. Finally, we're still trying to contact the Bureau of Criminal Investigation in order to obtain important facts about the case that we may not have had before. Harry W. Smith was a successful, funny, lively man. He was a father, grandfather, and great-grandfather. He was a loved and respected veteran and community member. On October 16, 2011, Harry was murdered in cold blood and his family became forever haunted by his loss. 
We want her to be remembered not for what happened to him, but rather for the amazing life he lived, the people he affected, and the positive light he spread to his community. On October 16, 2012, one year later after his death, the community came together at Yakengi Park to celebrate his life and bring awareness to his murder. We owe it to Harry to find his killer and put an end to the suffering his family has faced over the last 12 years. Please share the information of Harry W. Smith with your friends and family. Anyone with any information concerning his murder should step forward and contact the Ohio Borough Criminal Investigation. The number to submit a tip is 800-282-3784. If you're uncomfortable doing so, please contact us at coldcase at masonohioschools.com and we'll forward your information. Cold Case MHS Monsters and Demons is written by the Mason High School Cold Case students. The editing is done by current student Lydia Lisko and produced by me. The artwork for this podcast was created by students from the MHS Digital Design Interns. The theme song, Believe Me, was written and performed by MHS student Alexa Dahl. Thank you for listening to Episode 4, Fallen Hero. Please join us next time when we look into the untimely death of Joanne Herbert and her deadly interaction. Attack, you got me out of my head